Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Andrew. And I'm Caleb. And welcome to episode 26, The French and Indian War, part one. That's right, Andrew. This is going to be a several month project for us. We're looking at about six episodes on this. And for those of you from other countries, then it's the Seven Years' War. Now, I'm assuming you've heard of a gentleman called Sir Winston Churchill, correct, Caleb? Uh, yeah, he was kind of a big deal over there across the pond, wasn't he? Well, kind of a big deal on this side of the pond, too, <laughs> since he was the first guy ever to be made an honorary American citizen. His mother was American, too. Yes, she was. And among many other things, aside from pretty much saving the world single-handedly during World War II, but he was also a renowned historian. And when he wrote his history of the English peoples, he called this war the First World War. Because we're going to see that the events that get started right here in the Ohio country in North America are going to cause ripples that are going to affect around the world and almost every single major power in North America, in Europe, in Africa, and South Asia is going to get involved in this war. It's just going to get out of control. It's amazing. You think, uh, you read about all of the great events in history and they all have a starting point. Something small that happens that just kind of pushes the rock over the hill. And we're going to see that in these backwoods of Ohio, this is going to be that little push that lights the world on fire, so to speak. Yeah. If you think of Archduke Franz Ferdinand getting assassinated and the dominoes tumble and that's what starts the world war, we're not going to have a duke assassinated that's heir to the throne, but we're going to have somebody killed and everything's going to be a crapshoot from then on out. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We need to back up to where we left off in our last episode when we talked about Haudenosaunee diplomacy. And we mentioned that the Lenape, also known as the Delaware people, were pretty much cheated out of their land by William Penn's good-for-nothing sons, and the Council of the Fifty Sachems of the Iroquois decided to not push it and told the Delaware that they need to relocate, but it's okay because they have some open territory in the Ohio River watershed that they can move to. Now, the Delaware are going to become props to the Five Nations, which are allies with the English, but we're going to see here, due to them getting slighted by the English, you're going to have them side with the French, which is not only going to cause a war between the French and the English, but this is going to cause a Native American civil war, so to speak, because a lot of the Western props of the five nations, I guess we'll say six nations at this point, are, uh, are now starting to side with the French and fight against Iroquois allies. So let's talk about this Ohio Territory. For many years, back in the 15-1600s, was what we called Erie Territory. And if you want to go back and look at our episode, The Romans of the New World, we talk about the Erie people and how the Iroquois ended up conquering this region. But since they conquered this area, it's been mainly used by the five and six nations for hunting. But over this last century, people have started moving into it. There's been Seneca and Cayuga, predominantly people, coming in and here. And also... All these props and different refugees from all these other Native American nations have been moving into the area. And they're under this umbrella of the Six Nations, but they also have their semi-autonomous villages. So I'm going to give you a list of, by 1750, the number of people here. There was the Lenape, also called the Delaware. You had Shawnee, Catawba, Susquehannocks. In addition, there were members of every other different nation among the Iroquois. Over time, this melting pot of people began to be known as the Mingos collectively. Even though these people come from different cultures, different languages, they just kind of form this almost like a, a mirror of what the United States is today, all these different peoples living together. Now, by the 1740s, Andrew, a lot of the prominent colonist families had already gobbled up a lot of the land on the coast. They kind of ended up getting pushed up to this Ohio country where all of these prop nations had started dwelling. And uh, the English looked at this like, uh, okay, this is technically Iroquois land because they conquered it 100 years ago, and we're technically allies to the Iroquois, and we're not really allies because when it comes right down to it, we're actually their sovereign because they've signed treaties that said that they've sub they would submit to the King of England. So we have a legal right to this land. The problem is... Most of the nations didn't look at it like that. And also, the French decided, hey, we have rights to this land because we were here first. If you go back in some of our other earlier episodes, we talked about a man named La Salle. 
and how he explored the Ohio country and the Mississippi River Valley all the way down to modern New Orleans. And so the French laid claim to this area also. So you have pretty much these four groups. You have French, English vying for this area. You have the League of the Iroquois that are in name over it. And then you have this group of prop people that lay claim to it as well. The interesting thing about the Ohio country is the rivers. If you want to look on a map, Ohio and Pennsylvania are very unique because there is a river called the Allegheny that starts up in southern New York and it flows down into Pennsylvania. This river joins with the Monongahela, which is a river that flows up from the south from western Virginia, and they come together in this place called the Forks of the Ohio. And when they merge, they become the Ohio River. Now, why is this important? Well, the Ohio River flows down into the Mississippi. And you can get from the Great Lakes, and if you get on the Allegheny or the Ohio River, there's just this short little few hundred mile stretch between, and you could be going all the way up into Canada, or you could be going all the way down into Louisiana. And so the French are thinking, if we can build a few forts in this area, and we control this highway, we control all river traffic on all of North America. And in doing so, you're going to cut off any British expansion up to the river. So anything unexplored beyond this river, they could then have, if you picture America on the map, what would it be? Or I'm sorry, I say America, but when you picture the United States of America on a map, picture it being cut off at the Ohio River. And that's what could have happened if the French were able to succeed in making these forts all the way down the Ohio River. So they begin thinking to themselves, this is what we need to do. And it's kind of a little bit by little bit. In 1747, the French came to one of the Iroquois villages, a place called Logstown. And it's about 18 miles from where these rivers joined together. They were called the Forks of Ohio. If you're wondering where the heck this place is, I'm going to make it really simple for you. It's downtown Pittsburgh. That is the Forks of the Ohio. Now, Andrew, uh, why Pittsburgh's in Pennsylvania? Yes. So I think we should probably point out here that the Ohio country, the Ohio territory at the time, was actually even little bits of like northwestern Virginia and western parts of Pennsylvania, and then what we know of most of Ohio today. Yes. So it was the whole area that the Ohio River drained down into. So when the French show up at Logstown, they decide, hey, Let's try and get in favor with these Mingo Iroquois that are here. And, hey, let's build you guys a bunch of houses. And while they're there, they kind of do a little reconnaissance, and they're trying to see how many warriors are here. And they check it out, and they're like, okay, so they start doing a a head count while they're under the guise of building all these things. And they they realize how diverse it is. They're like, okay, there's 100 Wyandots, which are the descendants of the Huron. There's 162 Shawnee. There's 40 Mississauga, which are Algonquins from Canada. There's 15 Mohicans. There's 165 Lenape. And then there was over 300 different people from all the different Six Nations. So that's just the warriors. So Logstown was actually a very large town at the time. It could have been over 3,000 people, which in this formerly depopulated area means this is a very cosmopolitan and diverse trading center. So they sign a peace treaty with them, and they're like, okay, the French want to come and build houses with us, and they sign a thing of peace. That's all cool. That's all good. We're all for peace. And the French decide that uh, it's probably best to not keep a garrison here because they're hundreds of miles from any other French fort, so they just turn it over to them. But when the Six Nations hear that the French have come down to their props and built all these houses, they decide to send some of their official ambassadors down to help get a little more control and keep an eye on what's going on. And they sent two guys, right, Caleb? And their names were Tanagrasen and Monacatutha. They're pretty sure Monacatutha was an Oneida chief. And Tanagrasen had a lot of sway amongst the Seneca people, which, if you recall, they're the furthest of the Western Iroquois. So the Seneca have a lot of influence on these people in this area because they're right next door to them. Now, Andrew, meanwhile, back in Virginia, at just about the same time, less than a year later, a group of investors begin something called the Ohio Company. And this was set up for land speculation for the settlements of Virginia. Like I said, there's a lot of people in Virginia that are looking to increase their land and also a lot of new settlers that don't have any land because it's already been bought up. So this group, they had some key investors. One of them was named Thomas Lee. And a a little side note here, this is actually like the great-great-grandfather of Robert E. Lee from the Civil War. And two brothers named Lawrence and Augustine Washington. 
Lawrence Washington saw a great opportunity to make a ton of money in the Ohio country. The problem is no one really knew at the time who had rights to it. Like we said, they were pretty sure that it was theirs because of uh, some treaty signings with the Iroquois that they could make claim to it, but at the same time the French are. So nobody really is going gun-ho about just going in and claiming it because there will be a lot of consequences if they're wrong. So they really couldn't start selling the land until they received an official blessing from the crown. But they knew if they could obtain it, this would give them legal authority to basically do whatever they wanted with this huge part of North America. So Lawrence Washington sailed to England to pitch his plan to the king. The Ohio company told the king that they could make him a ton of money off this worthless land not even being used if he would just give them the speculation monopoly. Uh, you know, west of PA, Virginia, that general area. And the king thought to himself, hmm, I'm not really making any money off this land the way it is now. So he thought it sounded like a pretty good idea, and he gave the blessing to it. But the king was no fool. And uh, he wasn't going to just say, okay, you can have exclusive rights to all of it. So the king comes up with this pretty good plan. He tells them, I will give you the rights to 200,000 acres in the Ohio country. Which is quite a bit. That's quite a bit of land. And in return, you will be responsible for settling it with 300 families and assisting those families. And in return, if you can do this within seven years, I will give the Ohio Company 300,000 acres to do with whatever you want. So some incentives and the clock is ticking. Exactly. So the Ohio Company has... An amazing opportunity here. If they can succeed in seven years, they can become some of the richest and largest landholders in North America. And all they got to do is settle 300 families. It's a good thing nobody lives there. Good thing nobody <laughs> lives there. But you got to remember, though, if they fail, they lose the 200,000 acres because all the settlers get that and they get nothing in return for all their efforts. The following year in 1749, the French sends a force of about 300 men down the o Allegheny and Ohio rivers. And along the way they start, and, and this just makes zero sense to me, but apparently this was some kind of European custom. They would take these copper plates, Caleb, and they'd start nailing them to the tree, kind of like an official proclamation that, hey, this is French territory that's been claimed now. I guess they figure copper because it's not going to dissolve like paper. And then they take these lead plates that are carved and engraved, and they bury them underneath the feet of the tree at where the rivers have the headwaters. Now, the reasoning to this, Andrew, is they know that this is going to be at some point a big legal battle because technically... France and England are still at peace at this time. They haven't officially declared war on each other yet. So the French know that uh, if they can just find some legal way to say that they've already made claim to this land and they were here first, then the English will have to kind of submit to it. So bearing these lead tablets gives them the ability that if it comes into question, they can say, I know how to settle this. Follow me. They would get representatives from the colonies to come with them and they would go to the ground and they'd say, dig right there and you will find plates that we buried here on such and such a date proving that we were here before you and laid claim for France. Get off. I'll link on our website. They actually found one of these back in the uh, 19th century. It's, there's only been one that's been recovered, but there is a picture of it. So I'll show you. It's pretty cool. The French come back to Logstown, the area where they built all these cabins. And when they get there, they find that there's British traders actively trading with the Mingo Iroquois. And they're like, what's going on, man? I thought that we had exclusive rights here. And the Mingo Iroquois are like, we can trade with whoever we dang well please. Also, the Iroquois are allies with the British, so it wouldn't be very good for allied traders to come to your town and you tell them no, because it's going to get back really quick. Hey, uh, the Mingos are just trading exclusively with the French, and we've been banished from their villages. But that's exactly what the French do. They take all the British traders that are there, and they beat some of them up, and they throw them out, and they write a note and say, give this to your governor in Pennsylvania. Then you would think, well, they want to really get ingratiated to the natives that are there. But no, they start taking some of the leaders of the natives, and they start beating them over the head and telling them to not have any dealings with the English, and you guys are now under French domination because we've got lead tablets. And I bet some of them just look sideways at each other and like, you've got to be kidding me. 
Now, like we said, we, we have these two Iroquois chiefs there basically working as in, ambassadors and advisors to the Mingo and these other Ohio nations. And uh, Tanagrasen, the half-king, was his title. He did not care for the French whatsoever. He hated the French. Rumor has it, he recorded somewhere that the French at some point caught his father and boiled him to death. But it's recorded at other places that his whole family was killed by the French. So this Iroquois advisor is there in the village seeing and hearing about all these things. The French coming in and beating people and kicking the, the British traders out. Amazingly, we have some speeches that Tanagerson gave to the French leaders at the time. Which is just amazing because uh, even at this point in the 1700s, they're pretty rare. But I'm going to read one for you because I think that this will really tell you Tanagerson's feelings. Quote, Fathers, you in former days set a silver basin before us wherein there was a leg of a beaver and desired all nations to come and eat of it, to eat in peace and plenty, and not to curlish one another. And that if any such person should be found to be a disturber, I here lay down the edge of the dish a rod, which you must scourge them with. And if I, your father, should get foolish in my old days, I desire you may to use it on me as well as others. Now, fathers, it is you that are doing the disturbing in this land by coming and building your towns and taking away unknowns to us and by force. Fathers, we kindled a fire a long time ago at a place called Montreal, where we desired you to stay and not to come and intrude upon our land. Fathers, I desire that you may hear me in civilness. If not, we must handle the rod which was laid down to use on the oppressor. If you had come in a peaceable manner like our brothers, the English, we should not have been against you trading with us as they do. But to come, fathers, and build great houses upon our land and take it by force... It is what we cannot submit to. Fathers, both you and the English are white. We live in a country between. Therefore, the land belongs to neither one nor the other. But the great being above allowed it to be for a place for us to reside. So, fathers, I desire you to withdraw, as I have done our brothers the English. For I will keep you at arm's length. I will lay this down as a trial for both to see which has the greatest regard to it. And that side we will stand by and make equal shares with. Our brothers the English have heard this and I now come to tell you for I am not afraid to discharge you off this land. Snap. So then the French commander makes this reply to Tanagrasen. Now my child, I've heard your speech. You spoke first, but it's my time to speak now. Where is my wampum that you took away with the marks of the town in it? This wampum I do not know, which you have discharged me off this land. But you need not put yourself in trouble of speaking, for I won't even hear you. I am not afraid of flies or mosquitoes, for Indians are such as those. I tell you, down the river I will go, and I will build upon it, according to my command. If the river was backed up, I have the forces sufficient to burst it open and tread under my feet all that stand in opposition, together with the alliances, for my force is as the sand upon the seashore. Therefore, here's your wampum. I fling it at you. Child, you talk foolish. You say this land belongs to you, but the dirt under your fingernails isn't even yours. I saw this land sooner than you did, before the Shawnees and you were at war. Lead was the man that went down and took possession of that river. This is my land, and I will have it. If people will be ruled by me, they may expect kindness, but nothing else. So if you can guess, Andrew, the relationship between the French and these Six Nation ambassadors probably isn't going very well right now. It's almost like the French don't even care. I feel like if I was them, I would be doing everything I can to try to keep the Six Nations out of it. But the French are just pissing off all the wrong people right now. A little later down the road, May 28, 1752, the British come back to Logstown, and they meet with other representatives from the Six Nations that are there, as well as Delaware and Shawnee prop leaders. And they send a guy named uh, Colonel Joshua Fry of Virginia and Christopher Gist. 
He was a representative of the Ohio Company. They discussed the option of maybe some British people coming in to settle the area. I'm not sure if they mentioned how many British people they wanted to settle into the region. But the Iroquois said to them, um, we never told the British that they could settle in this area. And the British said, oh no, we had a, a 1744 treaty at Lancaster. And you guys ceded uh, territory to the colonists, any land be beyond the Allegheny Mountains. And this was on their paper, but this was one of those other British land fraud deeds that they had just snuck in and had them sign and they didn't know what was actually in it. And so in the end, the Iroquois and Tanagrison stand up and he says, um, we don't consider this Treaty of Lancaster valid. But he said he promised the Iroquois would not molest any British settlements southeast of the Ohio River. And he formally requested that the British would come and build a fort at the mouth of the Monongahela River, which is, again, as we mentioned, present-day Pittsburgh. Tanagrison is thinking, well, we do need the British in here because we hate the French and they're jerks, and so a little bit of British people coming in here would not be a bad thing, but we're definitely not opening up this whole region for them to just come in en masse. But he lists a few caveats. He says, I'm going to sign this thing, but I have to send word back to the council at Onondaga, and all the sachems there have to ratify this. And so I say yes, but their word is final, so don't come angry to me if we change our mind next year. While all this is happening, the French are not just sitting on their thumbs. In 1753, so the following summer, the French start building a line of forts. They start on the edge of Lake Erie, near present-day Erie, Pennsylvania, and then they follow with uh, Fort Le Boeuf in July, and that's about 15 miles inland near present-day Waterford. And then they build another fort down on the Allegheny River in an area called Venango. It's kind of near present-day Franklin. So they're building slowly by slowly this little chain of forts, and they're trying to get down to the forks of the Ohio because then they control three rivers, and they control all western access to the Mississippi. And so they've just got one more jump before they're there. This doesn't get unnoticed by Virginia, and especially by their current governor, a man named Robert Dinwiddie. I wonder if this guy got made fun of in school. I was thinking the same thing every time. I'm like, really? The guy's name is Dinwiddie? <laughs> so in 1753, Dinwiddie was trying to get intelligence on the French advance because this is pretty far away, and this is, this is the wild. Nobody goes there except for a few traders, and the, the few British traders that were there have been kicked out within the past couple of years. So there's not a lot of good intel coming out of there. So a major problem he had was nobody really knew where the French were or what they were doing in the Ohio. And then all of a sudden, like a sign from God, a 21-year-old Virginia militia officer shows up at his door. And he makes the governor an offer. And he tells him that he would be willing to put a small expedition together journey to the Ohio, find the French, deliver an eviction notice to them, and do any re reconnaissance that he could. But there was a catch. He said he'd only do it if the governor gave him a royal commission. This officer wanted to have the full authority of the British crown. Because otherwise, if you go into this wild land with the French and the Indians, uh, with a small escort of soldiers and people, they might just kill you. But if you had an official commission... From the king, you all of a sudden are an ambassador, and you need to treat them like an ambassador. So the governor is, is just ecstatic. He thinks that this is just great. This young man was pretty popular in the area. He was the county land surveyor, and he was the younger brother to the president of the Ohio Company. Uh, so there's obviously no other interest here other than serving his country. But his name was George Washington. Wait a second. That George Washington? That's the one. How old is he right now? He's just 21 years old. My goodness. I had no idea that he was even doing anything at 21 years old. And even at 21, he's already accomplished a lot. You know, like I said, he's already the county surveyor and he's, you know, uh, made some friends in high places. And his brother is the president of the Ohio Company. So he's a pretty influential guy at the time, even though he's just a young man. So he and a man named Christopher Gist and a few others set out pretty much the same day that they get orders and head for the Ohio country. On the way, Washington gets to stop and meet with almost everybody that's anybody among the native leaders in the Ohio country. He gets to call on the leader of the Delawares, a guy named Shingus, and this guy invites him to council at Logstown. 
After 25 days of journeying, they arrive at Logstown. And as soon as he gets there, he gets to meet Monica Tutha. And he inquires about Tanagrison, the half-king, and they say, well, he's out at his hunting cabin right now, about 15 miles away. And he said, I would love to meet him. And so they send a messenger to uh, go get him. And he lets them know what his point of the journey is. He said he's come to deliver a message to the French telling them to leave the area. And they're just ecstatic that they think that the English are actually going to help them get rid of the French. Once Tanagrison gets back from his hunting cabin, he's very happy to meet Washington, and he's just ecstatic that the English are coming to help remove this French menace from the area. And he asks him what his name is, and he says it's George Washington. And he says, Washington? That sounds familiar. In fact, you know, my grandfather talked about a guy named Washington. We called him Conaticarius. And uh, if you remember back from our Bacon's Rebellion episode, there was a John Washington there that slew a lot of Indians and burned a lot of Indian towns. After they surrendered. And they gave him the name Town Destroyer or Town Taker. They say, are you related to John Washington? And George says, yeah, that was my great-grandfather. So you'd think that this would all of a sudden make a lot of people say, wait a minute, can we trust this guy? If his great-grandfather murdered a lot of Indian chiefs? But not really. They end up bestowing the same name of his grandfather on him. And they say, okay, now you're going to go and take a lot of towns, but you're going to take towns on our side. For the rest of Washington's life, whenever he's doing correspondence or meeting with Iroquois leaders, he's going to sign or use his name as Conaticarius. So the half-king Tanagrison says, I want to go with you to the French when you personally deliver this letter. And Washington says, all right, can we leave tomorrow? And he's like, well... It's going to take a few days. He's like, well, what's the problem? And this is where Washington gets his first dose of trying to understand Iroquois culture. Because Tanagrison says, we need to get the wampum belts. And he's like, what? Why do you need these wampum belts? He says, whenever we do diplomacy, we need to use the wampum belts. And we are letting the French know that we are severing all ties with them. And they left some wampum belts with the Delaware and the Shawnee. And we want to get those belts. And we're going to bring them back to the French and throw it in their faces and tell them that we don't want them here anymore. A way that I might describe the use of this wampum belt in, in this situation, it was kind of like going to court and not swearing that you'll tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, it would be like going in there and not swearing that you'll tell the truth and then nothing you say will hold up in court. It was kind of the same way with these wampum belts. They had the symbolic thing like we're friends, but at the same time, when you brought the wampum belt, it meant that you were the representative of the people that made it, and this was officially what your people had to say. So if you just went in as one person and spoke without wampum belt, that means it's just your voice, and it doesn't carry much weight. So Washington is learning, and he says, okay. And a couple days pass, and he's asking Tanagrison. He said, we're trying to track it down. If it doesn't come tomorrow, we'll leave. And it finally does come, and they head out. So Washington leaves with a whole party. It's him and Tanagrison, a guy named Jessicate, a man named White Thunder. That sounds like a great guy to have going with you. We got White Thunder coming with us. Another man named Gayasuta, who was also called the Hunter, and he was a very influential uh, Seneca leader as well. So finally, on December 4th, they reach the closest French fort. Washington walks in. He delivers his letter officially asking slash demanding that the French leave the Ohio country. The French kind of just look at him and say, yeah, uh, we're not going to do that. But we're a hospitable folk, and we would like you to come in and sit down and eat with us. Meanwhile, Washington kind of hides to Nagerson, and he doesn't want him to come in the fort. He wants him staying out. Washington's worried that with Tanagrison there with him, the French might try and do some sweet talking to him. And so he says, maybe it's best if you just hang out here for a little bit. And Tanagrison says, that's probably a good idea. Yeah, whenever the French and the English are both in the same room with the same Indian chief, all of a sudden they start treating them a lot better and making promises and giving gifts and things like that. It was a very good situation to be in when you were an Indian chief, uh, but the problem is it could get out of hand. If Washington thinks this chief is going to fight with him and then all of a sudden... He's going to lose his best Indian ally because the French are going to make some new sweet-talking deal with him. Fortunately for Washington, Tanagrison was a staunch British ally, and nothing the French said was going to change his mind. He hated the French. While Washington's here, he's also got an ulterior motive. He's 
looking at the fortifications. He's walking around and counting out the steps to see how big the fort is. He's counting the heads. He's counting the cannons. He's peeking in the storehouse when the doors are open. He's invited to dinner, and they sit down together, and the French have all manner of lovely alcoholic beverages. And over the course of dinner, Washington is drinking a little bit, but not as much as the French people are. And he says that their tongues were loose, and they were just flying and braggadocious, and they started spelling out all the plans that they planned on doing for the future. Saying, yep, we're planning on sending some guys down, and we're going to build a fort at the Ohio River, and we're going to take over this whole land. And Washington's just nodding his head. Mm, really? And when do you plan on doing this? I think it's important to note Washington wrote down in his journal that this is how he perceived it. Uh, other people have commented that this is a veteran French officer and he most likely didn't tell Washington anything that he didn't want to tell him. So he could have also been putting off a persona that he was drunk and telling him these things to make it sound like a done deal. Yeah, we've already got a thousand men on the way. We've already got the funding for 36 forts from here, Louisiana. And yeah, it's a done deal. And when in reality, they might have been having the same logistical issues that some of the colonists were having. Finally, Tanagerson says he wants to go in and talk to the French commander and return the wampum belts. And when the French commander sees these group of Iroquois leaders returning the wampum belts and saying that they're no longer their friends, the French commander says, Tanagerson, I hate that guy. He's more English than the English. They viewed it as he was betraying them. When, when did Tanagerson ever say that he was friends of the French? But they were probably more mad at the Delaware and the Shawnee for having these belts returned. Washington and his friends leave the garrison and they start heading back and they take the scenic route. They want to visit other Mingo towns on their way. Because this is a good opportunity to show some British influence to all these other chiefs. Because you got to remember, there's a lot of these nations that are probably on the border. We're going to side with the French or the English. So Washington sees a good opportunity here to go and meet with the leaders show him what a nice, handsome young man he is and tell them how the British are getting ready to raise a huge army to come through here to save your land. That's another thing we didn't mention, but uh, throughout the talks with the Native Americans, Washington didn't always say that we're coming to uh, expand British land. He said, we're coming to fight for your land so the French don't take it. One village that's interesting that he stops at, there's a well-known female chief there. The British called her Queen Aliquippa. Uh, Washington said that he was sorry that he missed her on the way, and uh, she was so happy that he stopped by on the way back. Yeah, it, he had heard through the grapevine uh, from some of these other chiefs, and they all said, you know, you really should have stopped to see Queen Aliquippa. She's very influential, and uh, she might have thought it was kind of rude that you didn't stop to talk to her. And so Washington said, how about I stop right now? And so that's what he did, and she appreciated it. Washington writes in his journal that he gave her a match coat and a bottle of rum, but she said to him that she thought that the second one was the much better gift. <laughs> so as they are continuing their journey back to Virginia, you got to remember this is a this took several months. I think it I think it took almost four months for this journey for Washington and his little group of friends to get up there and, and head back. So as they're coming back, it's taking a lot longer, not only because of the stops they made, but winter is in dead swing now. This is, it's December. They left in like late October. And the snow is deep. The snow is deep and the nights are cold. And Washington doesn't have a lot of experience really at all as far as uh, camping in the winter. He is a surveyor, so he does a lot of hiking, uh, but this is a little different. And they come across a friendly Indian in their travels. And he offers to guide them back. And he says, you guys are taking a long way. Why don't you let me guide you? So they thank him. They let him lead the way. And then after a couple days of walking, he offers to help carry their backpacks. He says, oh, those backpacks look really heavy. Why don't you let me carry some of those? And they say, sure. And then they walk for another day. And he says, hey, your guns, those have to be really heavy. I'm young, strong. Why don't you let me carry the guns? And George Washington uh, He's starting to think that something's not quite right here. And he's starting to get a little suspicious. So he tells the Indian, uh, I'm actually quite comfortable carrying this gun, so don't worry about it. And uh, Washington notes in his journal that like a light switch coming on, all of a sudden the Indian went from being as friendly as possible 
to being really edgy and uncomfortable. And uh, they kept walking and walking. And all of a sudden, Gist comes up and he whispers to Washington. And he says, he's been watching the sun. And he says, I don't think we're heading in the right direction. So they start pressing the guide, you know, how much longer? And he says, not far. And they ask him again, well, how far now? And he says, as far as a musket can be heard. And they're all saying, and this is getting kind of creepy. They walk a little more and they say, how much longer? And he says, as far as a scream can be heard. And then all of a sudden, the Indian turns around with his musket and shoots directly at Gist. Washington jumps on the Indian and tackles him. And then Gist comes over and Washington's asking him, are you hurt? Did you get hit? And he said, no, he missed me. So they're there and they pound this guy in the ground and they pin him and tie him up. And Gist says, we got to kill him because he, you know, this guy could have, he's probably leading us to his village and he's some, from some enemy tribe and they're going to kill us. So he picks up the knife for the gun to kill him and Washington says, no, we're not going to kill him. What do you mean we're not going to kill him? We're not going to kill him. So he, so he submits to Washington. Washington's his superior, even though he's a 21-year-old kid. So they're like, oh, what are we going to do then? We're in the middle of the woods. Are we going to have one of us stay up all night every night and rotate who gets to sleep every other day to watch him so we don't get our throats slit? So they say, okay, we'll just tie him up and have him walk in front of us for now. So they do that. And that gets old really quick. And uh, Washington says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to let him go. And Gist says, let me give you some advice. Here's what we're going to do. Right before dark, we're going to make camp like we're going to sleep for the night. We're going to let him go, and we're going to say, uh, it was too bad you accidentally shot at us over there. And then you're, and then he was fishing for a, oh yeah, it was an accident to come out of the Indian, but the Indian didn't get, get the joke that they were giving him out. So he said, you better get walking, it's cold out. So the Indian gets up and walks away. And Washington sits down for the night, and he says, no. We're not camping here for the night. That was just to make him think we were. We're walking all night to get away from him. So they packed up their stuff and they walked all night long. So that's really amazing. One, that Washington would even spare the guy's life because I would probably be thinking the same thing. I don't want to kill this guy, but we got to kill this guy because he could send his friends after us. Or he could come in the middle of the night with a knife and kill us both in our sleep. I give a big thumbs up to George Washington for being a really cool guy. Washington finally makes it back to Colonial Williamsburg, which is the capital of Virginia, and he tells Governor Dinwiddie that the French, uh, pretty much as we thought, they refused to leave. But Dinwiddie takes Washington's journal, and he has all the events that happened in it published. A lot of people find this very interesting. They kind of wake up and realize, hey, if the French build another fort, we're pretty much encircled because we can't expand anymore. And then what are we going to do? So Washington, as a consequence of this, kind of becomes semi-famous in the area for going on this expedition. And he gets recognized by the House of Burgesses and they give him an official thank you and everything. But it wasn't all peaches and cream. A lot of the people in the House of Burgesses looked at the fact that he's the brother of the president of the Ohio Company. And a lot of people kind of whispered behind his back and said, what if he's just making this whole thing up so that he can get an army to go there and clear the area so that his brother and family can get the rights to this 200,000 acres that we're hearing about from the king? So there were people saying that, but Washington just brushed them all aside, and uh, he was just happy to get the, the respect that he felt like he deserved after the long mission. The governor immediately appoints a guy named William Trent and has him get a small force together and they're going to head down to the Forks of the Ohio and begin construction on a new facility. Dinwiddie kind of gives these instructions out just by himself. He figures, I don't have time to deal with the House of Burgesses and I definitely don't have time to send a letter to England and wait for a reply back. The French are going to be there anytime now. We need to build this fort right away. So William Trent and his company arrive on site really quickly in February 1754, and they begin building a storehouse and stockade. And meanwhile, Tenagrison has met them there, and he's got some natives with him helping to build it. When the French Canadians hear about this, they get a little larger group together, right, Caleb? That's right. The, the Canadians end up sending out a force of about 500 men. Even more important than that, they had a lot of Indians with them. And on April 16th, they arrived 
and demanded that the English turn over the fort because we buried lead tablets here. So, meh. Trent was away, and uh, the ensign in charge only had 36 men against these 500. And so he said, uh, can I think about this? And they said, yeah, you can think about it. You got an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so 60 minutes later, the British surrendered, and the Canadians tore down the British fort and began to build an even bigger fort. They called it Fort Duquesne. Tanagrasin is really embarrassed by this because he's been telling his people that the British are going to come in and they're going to stop the French, but the British only sent a few dozen people and now this whole army has come and they've taken over this strategic area. Without even a fight. Yeah, not one shot is fired. A lot of people say, well, this is the start of the French and Indian War. No, technically they're still at peace. They threatened them, but nobody shot at each other. So Tanagrasin is thinking to himself, we got to get the English back in here and we got to drive out these French. He gets it in his head, and he might not be that paranoid, that the French commanders have put a price on his head and want him dead because of his influence in the region. So after all these English left, you kind of picture a lot of the the bordering chiefs in some of these smaller nations saying, maybe we should, uh, should have sided with the French and not the English, because they're here with 500 men and uh, cannons and boats and everything, and the British sent a couple dozen people up, so... It's looking like we're probably going to have to be allies with the French for a while. Tanagrasin gets some hope. He hears in the spring of that year that the Virginia governor is having Washington come back, and this time with troops. Washington's going to be the second in command of this force that's going to head down to Fort Duquesne, and there's a commander named Joshua Fry who he knows that has been in on several treaties, and he's going to meet up with Washington shortly. So Washington leaves on April 2nd with 186 men. Not a lot. Definitely a lot less than what the French have, but like I said, Colonel Fry is going to meet up and he's going to lead this new expedition to retake the fort. Also, even though he was only heading out with uh, 186 men, the other colonies north and south of them were pledging two to 500 men apiece. So he's thinking within a matter of a month, we could have up to 2,000 people down here. So Washington's job is mainly to reconnaissance and maybe build a few roads or pathways to help make it easier for the main army to get through when they get here. Tanagrasin writes a letter and asks it to be sent back to the governors uh, when he hears of the great plans. And this is what he says. The sachems and warriors of the Six Nations, the Shawnees and the Delaware, our friends and brethren, we thank you for your steadfast adherence to us. We thank you for your kind speech, for your wise counsels and directions. We thank you for the ones that met us on the road as soon as possible to assist us in council, to assure you of the goodwill we bear for you, and to confirm truth of what has been said, I herewith present you this string of wampum, that you may by remember how much I am your brother and friend. Very so, nice. Very nice. Tanagrasin is really happy, and according to custom, he's sending the wampum belt to strengthen their alliance. Washington's got these grand ideas in his head, and he's writing back, it might be advisable, could we, could we call on the Cherokee and the Chicabas and the Chickasaws down south to come up and help us too? Because they don't like the French either. But if you guys do that, tell them that the Iroquois are involved and that they should bury the hatchet and be at peace because I know that they do hate each other. But it would be great if they could come and everybody could be friends and we could drive out the French. This shows that from a very young age... Washington is learning something that a lot of other people in these wars did not learn, and that was the importance of having Native American warriors on your side. They could move through the woods, they could live off the land and not use up supplies, and we're going to see that throughout the French and Indian War, whoever controls the most Native American warriors are going to be the people that are going to win. That being said, Washington didn't want to just rely on the Natives because he had heard that men from Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Maryland had been promised. So he asked those three governments to please send supplies and men as soon as possible because everybody's coming together and pretty soon we're going to need to move on this and please help and do what you said. Another thing Washington asked for in addition to supplies is he asked for shirts and wampum beads. And you may think to yourself, well, why does he need that to fight the French? Well, to get these Indian allies, he needs some trade goods, so everybody likes a new set of clothes. And if you're going to do diplomacy, if you show up without wampum that designates who you are officially, they're not going to listen to you. 
So Washington wants some wampum to make some belts to send representatives out to get more allies. Now, while Washington is working his way up to the forks of the Ohio, at the same time, the French commander at Fort Duquesne hears about it. So he sends Joseph Jumonville with 36 men to see if Washington had entered French territory and if he had to uh, find Washington and basically do the exact same thing that Washington did to the French the year before. Give them this official uh, petition to evict them from French territory. Things are moving very quickly. The French seem to be the much more professional soldiers at this time. And Washington's on his own. Like we said, he is the lieutenant colonel. He's the second in command of this army. But he hasn't heard from his colonel in a while. Not heard anything back from the governors of these other colonies other than, you know, wishful thinking and promises that never seem to get acted on. And only 150-ish militia peasants who are probably the lowest of the low. Washington states in his records that a lot of them showed up for militia duty with no shoes, no shirts, half-starved. And this is his army. He has no battle experience, so he's most likely going to have to rely on a lot of the advice from the half-king, Tanagrasen. On May 27th, Washington is informed by Christopher Gist. That's the guy, his friend, that went on the previous expedition with him. He says that there's a Canadian party of about 50 people in the area. In response, Washington sent about 75 men with Gist to find them. Later that evening, Washington gets a message from Tanagrasen saying he found the French camp, but that Gist had gone in the wrong direction. So Washington goes with 40 men and Tanagrasen, and they meet up together, and the half-king pleads with him to attack this group of French people. He says, it's a hostile party, and they're trying to ambush us. So the the Mingo leader, and he's got 12 warriors, and some of them are just like a couple boys. And the 40 colonials take up positions along these rocks in a glen, and they look down into this little tiny ravine, and they see the French camping there. This is what Washington writes happens in his diary. He says, We were advanced pretty near to them when they discovered us, whereupon I ordered my company to fire during the greatest part of action, which lasted only a quarter of an hour before the enemy was routed. We killed Mr. de Jumonville, the commander, and also nine others. We wounded one and made 21 prisoners. Do you remember back in grade school, Caleb, how George Washington cut down the cherry tree and said, I cannot tell a lie? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Washington doesn't lie but he kind of leaves out a lot of details because something maybe happened after the fighting. Based on other people's versions of what happened and as we stitched them together, it kind of went down like this. After Washington opened fire, the French ensign, Jumonville, shouted for a ceasefire and he began waving around a piece of paper in his hand saying he was on a diplomatic mission, probably again from Alderaan. So Washington tells everybody to stand down and not fire and they're rounding everybody up just to be safe. And Jumonville begins reading this statement, saying he was traveling to give a message ordering Washington to leave. Washington's listening to him say this, but Washington doesn't know any French. And while Jumonville is reading this, Tanagrasen is fed up with the French, with them trying to invade his territory. And he comes up to the ensign and he says, You are not yet dead, my father. And he grabs his tomahawk and drives it into his skull, cracks his head open, And then he proceeds to wash his hands with the Frenchman's brains. There might be a reason why Washington (laughs) left this out of his report. So was this, I didn't, I didn't come across that. Was that from some of the French writings? No, one of the English uh, guys that was accompanying Washington. (laughs) Okay, because I was thinking if this is some propaganda that the French wrote afterwards. No, this comes from the English. It would... You know, it sounds like something that's too gruesome to be real, but if English privates were writing this back home to their moms... Uh... Now, to add another wrinkle to this conundrum, Jumonville was the half-brother of the captain who's back at Fort Duquesne. The one in charge of almost a thousand men. So, Tanagrasen probably knew this and killed Jumonville Perhaps to egg the English and French into a war, or perhaps to just get some revenge against the French people based on all they've done against his people and his family. Either way, this incident is first shots fired of the French and Indian War, and George Washington is the one that orders the shots to be fired, and he possibly could have been firing along with them. After getting out of there, they just leave the bodies. They they don't even bury anyone. Washington 
doesn't know there could be other groups of people around and he's expecting an attack and Tanagrison goes out on a regional mission to try and convince all the other Indians in the area to join up with all the Virginians at Great Meadows so he's going around to the Delaware the Shawnee all the Seneca Indians and Washington begins to construct a fort fort is a very loose term and it was done on June 3rd and Washington named it Fort Necessity or Fort of Necessity did you ever uh, make one of those like sheep forts as a kid with the clothespins on the clothesline? Yeah. Yeah, his fort was uh, not much more impressive than that. <laughs> it was it was a little lean-to storage house, uh, a circular picket fence about six feet high and about 50 feet around. So if you picture 150 men, there's not even enough room for everybody to stand in this fort. It was so small. Honestly, it wasn't even designed to be like that. It was mainly just to store provisions. So a lot of the people are stationed outside. A few days later, though, by June 9th, the rest of the Virginia regiment arrives at Great Meadows. And Washington is just so glad that Colonel Fry is finally there and he can know what he's supposed to do. Yeah, it takes a lot of stress off you once you're not the the number one guy in charge anymore. So as all the men walk in, George Washington slapping on the back, okay, where's, where's the colonel? Where's the colonel? One of the ensigns come up to him and they say, oh... The colonel fell off his horse last week and hit his head. And then he moaned in bed for about four days. And then he died. So, uh, and then they salute him. So what do you want us to do, colonel? And Washington's like, all right, I guess we're building a road down to the creek. And we're going to try and take this fort. A few days later, another 100 British regulars arrive. But things get a little harder from there because... uh, the, the hundred men that show up, they were actual redcoats. They were real redcoat, real British professional soldiers led by Captain James McKay. And the problem with this is there was this huge divide between militia and professional soldiers. Professional soldiers didn't respect the militia, and they technically didn't have to listen to any orders from the militia colonel because the colonel was commissioned from the governor of the colony as opposed to the captain of the commissioned army was commissioned directly from the crown. So even though Washington was a colonel and this guy's a captain, they can't work together at all. Uh, Washington records in a letter that uh, when he gets there, he greets the captain and they're getting along real good. Washington sends a note to the captain to say, okay, here's the password to get into the fort. And the captain says, no, I can't accept that password. What do you mean? Well, because you're issuing it and we can't accept orders from you. This isn't an order, Washington said. This is just the password to get in your fort. Yeah, but I think it's best I just not accept it. So they literally could not work together at all. It was just impossible. At the same time, Dinwiddie was writing Washington letters back and forth. And Washington said, can you please tell us who's in charge? If he's in charge, okay, that's fine. I just need to know because we can't have two people in charge of two separate armies and coordinate anything productive. So he finally gets the letter back from Dinwiddie, and Dinwiddie says, please try to work as best as you can with the captain. And Washington's (laughs) cursing under his breath. And so they end up not even camping in the same place. The captain takes his men, you know, a half a mile away, and they camp separate and don't work together at all. Washington's relationship with Tanagrison gets really strained after this as well because Washington is a little bit upset at him for bashing the brains in of this French guy because now he feels like you've escalated things a lot worse than they could have been. Also, Tanagrison starts giving Washington some advice, but Washington is getting a little hot-headed because he's thinking, I can't listen to what Tanagrison says because he says that we should bash people's heads. And so Tanagrison is actually giving very good advice, but Washington just can't receive it. Yeah, and one of the pieces of advice he's giving him is, you need to get all your men and you need to move your fort or you need to fall back. Because he's looking at this fort that Washington built, and Washington was very proud of his fort, he wrote in his letters. But Tanagrison looks at his fort, and it's this small fort built directly between two wooded hills. So when the French come, all they need to do is take control of the two hills, and they can shoot down into the fort and pin everybody down there. Uh, So he tells Washington, you got to get out of there. And Washington says, no, I just spent all this time building this fort. It's my first fort. I'm very proud of it. And Tanagrison says... That little thing up on the meadow, and he really complains that Washington would not listen to his advice. Tanagerson realizes that the British are going to lose. 
So he realizes that the best thing for him to do in this situation is for he, his family, and the people that are still loyal to him to leave. They need to get to someplace safe because the French are coming. He meets up with Queen Aliquippa, and they head out east. They end up settling near modern-day Harrisburg, so pretty good distance away from where they're at. He's not going to take part in the rest of the war, mainly because he contracts pneumonia and he dies on October 4th, 1754. So it's possible that if he did bash this captain's head in with a tomahawk, he is the person that actually started the war in a lot of ways, but he doesn't live to see the end of it or even really to see it ramp up. Washington, even though now he's lost all Indian support, which kind of makes his troops more vulnerable to attack, Washington continues to work on his road-building project down towards Redstone Creek. The problem is, at this point, Washington has been petitioning for supplies and things like that, and his men are at near starvation. And this is building up to just days before the French arrive to attack, and his, his men have no food. Uh, it's said that they had a couple like starving cows, and they were divvying those out and they had a couple sacks of dried corn. And that was all the food they had for this 400 men. Washington had written back to someone and said, I was told that I was promised 10,000 partials of wheat. And the guy writes back to him and says, Sir, you are gravely mistaken. I'm sorry that anybody told you that. They are a liar and a scoundrel. But we only have 400 partials here to uh, deliver to you. So Washington begins fuming under his breath and blaming the different colonial governments for not giving him any help. But right before the French show up, a wagon train of supplies does show up. And Washington is just ecstatic. He thinks, okay, this is going to save us. So that the wagons roll into town and they open them up and it's a bunch of rum. He said, where's, the, where's all the corn? Oh, there's no corn. Where's all the flour? Oh, we got, here's a couple sacks of flour, but we're just the rum caravan. His supplies, no gunpowder, no food, just a bunch of rum. Just Which is I, actually worse because yeah. now you're going to have a bunch of drunk, depressed soldiers. Exactly. What do people do when they start to feel uh, like they're about to die? They're just going to start drinking. So things aren't going well, very well at this point. On June 28th, after holding a council of war, Washington finally realizes that, yeah, I should have listened to Tanagerson. We need to withdraw from the Great Meadows. But that same day, 600 French and 100 Indians leave Fort Duquesne, and they're led by the slain Jumonville's older brother. And on July 1st, they reach Fort Necessity before Washington has enough time to round up and leave. Immediately, uh, gunfighting starts to be exchanged. And remember, this tiny little fort could barely fit everybody before, and now they've got more people. And so they're actually fighting outside the fort, trying to hold the French back, and they've all got to retreat inside. And then it starts to rain. And it doesn't just rain, Andrew. It pours. And Washington had a, a moat dug around the fort for all his people to, to sit in and crouch in to fight. And it just filled up with water. So everybody is there in cold rain in a foot and a half of water in a ditch. And their their muskets pretty quickly become useless after about a half an hour of raining. They can't keep the powder dry or get the flints to spark. And the French really put a hurting on them because they get to those elevated positions that the half-king Tanagerson had mentioned. And they're shooting right down into the fort. And a lot of the the soldiers are behind the wood or in the ditch, so they can't really hit them that great. But their last cows and goats and dogs are out there, and they instantly kill all their livestock and all of their horses. So then, if they do decide that this is going to be a siege, they can starve them out to have better terms. The French commander had the colonial troops right where he wanted them. They were pinned down, they were out of rations, and he most likely could have wiped them out. But there was one problem, and that's he didn't know when the reinforcements were going to be coming. He didn't want to rush everybody in and risk losing a bunch of his men, but he didn't want to risk uh, 500 reinforcements with full of supplies showing up that next morning. And there were a couple other issues, too. Uh, one of them was he wasn't sure if he was even legally justified to wipe them out since technically the crowns were still at peace. Uh, just because they're fighting here, and it makes sense, the king of France might get a little angry at him if he finds out that they are fighting this huge war. 
on this land that they really haven't settled who it belongs to. He thought a better option might be to give the colonists a chance to leave. So they send out an officer under a white flag of truce to negotiate. Washington doesn't want to let the guy in the fort because he doesn't want him to realize how bad it really is inside and that they don't have anything. In his records, he says he didn't want to give him a chance to, like, spy on the fort. But it's like this, seriously, this is like a uh, circle picket around a lean-to. So I think Andrew's correct. It's more, he doesn't want to see everybody, he doesn't want the French to see everybody starving with no gunpowder. And they begin to negotiate. Again, Washington speaks no French, so he's got a guy there with him, a guy named Jacob von Brahm. As they're negotiating to get these terms worked out, all this rum that's been delivered, the Virginians break into it and start drinking, and they're all in a stupor. And Washington says, we gotta surrender right now before things get worse. So they work out the terms of the deal, and they realize that the Virginians would be able to leave with their personal property, one field piece cannon, as is tradition in European warfare, and they would officially surrender, tear down the fort, and just walk away. Washington heard these terms, and he basically agreed to them. One thing that the, the French commander said was, you don't get to leave with any gunpowder, but Washington said, let's be honest, if we leave without gunpowder, the Indians are going to come and kill us all. So he, it says that he took a, a pen and just crossed that part out. So once that happened, Washington accepted the terms. One of the aides to the French commander wrote down the surrender terms and gave them to Van Brahm, who was the interpreter for Washington, because Washington couldn't read or speak any French. There was one small problem though, and that's that Van Brahm, he wasn't really truly fluent in French. In fact, he was Dutch, and he spoke English as a second language, and he spoke French as a third language. And in the surrender terms, it mentioned that he was there for revenge for Jumonville being assassinated. But Van Brahm interpreted it as if Jumonville had been killed, not assassinated. So Washington and McKay, the guy that Washington can't get along with, signed the document, but Washington is not aware that he's signing a confession that he ordered the assassination or is responsible for the assassination of Jumonville. And the French are going to have fun with this document because they're going to take this all the way back to Europe and they're going to throw this in the King of England's face. So they are allowed to leave and march back to Virginia completely unmolested. Now the interesting thing about the date that they left, Caleb, if you had to guess, what's the day that they surrender and leave? No idea. July 4th. Yes, the 4th of July, 1754. You can't make this stuff up. Washington and his troops abandon his beautiful fort necessity. And it's not until months later that uh, this actually comes back to bite Washington in the butt because he really had no idea what he was signing. Like Andrew said, the French are going to take this letter of surrender back to Montreal and they're going to mass print it. And then it's going to be translated into English, and it's going to get printed and shipped into the colonies. So all of a sudden, Washington's going to be walking down the street one day, and there's going to be his signed surrender statements confessing that he assassinated this captain in the French army. Washington doesn't know any of this at the time. A couple weeks later, he arrives and reports the battles that have happened to Governor Dinwiddie. And he's kind of expecting a rebuke, thinking that he failed horribly. But Washington instead again receives a vote of thanks from the House of Burgesses. Dinwiddie blames the defeat not on Washington, but on poor strategy and on the other colonies for refusing to send the supplies and troops that he needed to carry out the operation. But like Caleb said, once these things get translated into English and sent over to England, Parliament thinks very differently of this. Uh, one member of Parliament wrote, This is a volley fired by a young Virginian in the backwoods of America, and it set the world on fire. Now, Governor Dinwiddie isn't going to just roll over. He instantly starts thinking of a way to get another expedition going, to get more officers, more men, more supplies, more wagons, and try to get something on the books for next year to go in there and take back what the French took. This made a lot of people realize something, this defeat. And that's that you really can't just take people with no experience as soldiering and expect them to perform well. Governor Dinwiddie decides instead of talking to Washington or another colonial militia officer, he's going to write a letter directly to the King of England. And he's going to say, this is your land and the French are taking it. You need to send us an army because our militia people just aren't getting the job done. So the king agrees. 
And he taps a guy on the shoulder named Braddock. And uh, he basically puts a, a pretty spectacular army together. 2,000 men, professional soldiers with supplies. They now have an experienced general to lead this campaign. But there's one problem, and that's that they are going to send your stereotypical, stubborn, bossy, redcoat general that has never taken a step in the new world, has never fought what we now know today as guerrilla warfare in the frontier. And the soldiers that he's going to be sent with, they may be professional soldiers, but they're, they've been on garrison duty for the past two years, and they've never even shot their guns. So you're going to put 2,000 untrained redcoats with a stuck-up, snobby British general, and we're going to see what happens next week. Thank you so much for listening to us today, folks. We hope that you've enjoyed. We're so happy to be working on our second season on Iroquois History and Legends. This is going to be a fun time period to cover. And if you guys could do us a favor, check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. We're going to be putting up a lot of cool things, pictures, maps, charts, diagrams, all kinds of things, so that you can get a better idea of what we're talking about when we're referencing these battles and movements. Also, like us on Facebook. That really is... I love our website, but Facebook is just so much easier to post stuff and also have interactions between you and us. It's a great way to message us. Or you can email us, longhousepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Iroquois History. And as always, we would like to thank everybody who's joined the Wild Sweet Potato Clan and left us a review on iTunes. Yes, Andrew, the clan seems to be growing quite large. I think we're going to have to build an extension on our longhouse soon. Some of you might be wondering, how do we become members of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan? Well, all you need to do is go on iTunes and leave us a positive review. And Andrew and I will take your username and we will put it on our website. You will then be an official member of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. And you can point to the website and all your friends and say, look there, that's me. I think we're going to start giving shout outs to people that leave iTunes reviews after every episode You know, I was thinking well. that would be good. We could do like five at the end of every episode and mm-hmm. until we're caught up. So... I think that's what we'll do next time. So if you want to hear us say your name, or at least your username, leave us a review on iTunes. Watch, somebody's going to have just this offensive, appalling name. I'm Skunkbutt82. Oh, good grief. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. (laughs) Bye, everybody.